One of the great joys in my professional career really plugged into my brain as I was preparing the class for this Sunday, for today. In this series, we're trying to look at God's CV, his curriculum vitae, uh, the course of his life. And, and, and as a lawyer, I analyze those all the time for expert witnesses. I put them on the stand, I challenge them, etc. But that's only a part of what I do. Another part of what I do as a lawyer is I try to take ideas and concepts and educate them, uh, educate a jury to those facts. So I I sit there and I think, okay, I've got a jury here. How am I going to educate the jury about the things the jury needs to know? And it's very difficult in some ways to, to take ideas that, that seem to be a bowl of spaghetti and turn them into something that seems very reasonably logical, something you can process, something you can eat. I don't know how many of you have tried to take spaghetti. I, I think I'm probably, uh, look, let's just be blunt. I err on the side of being too compulsive and obsessive about that in my disorder. Someone, I've, I've adopted a saying from someone I met who was as obsessive and compulsive as I am, maybe even worse, and, and was telling me, I'm so sorry. I'm, I, I, and I said, it's okay. I've got some um, uh, OCD in my background too. And she said, please, please, it's CDO. There's no reason not to alphabetize it. <laughs> I mean, there are some people that don't want to eat spaghetti because you can't do anything with it in that state. So just order the penne pasta and let's line it up right. Or you can do what I do, which is take your fork and cut the spaghetti in nice rows so that you can eat it that way. But I like things to make sense. And I want to make sense of things to people. And one of the ways that I try and do that with juries especially, but not just with juries, with anybody that I'm teaching, is I I try to draw metaphors and analogies that can help make sense of difficult material. There are limitations to metaphors and analogies. They're never absolutely dead on. You can always find problems with them. I'm not saying that they're the correct way to learn something fully. But sometimes it helps. You grasp an idea if you deal in some metaphors and some analogies. They do help make sense of difficult materials. So here was a case I was trying in Louisiana a number of years ago. It dealt with a drug, and the drug was the the pioglitazone molecule. And and, uh, I, I won't use the common drug name because I guess that's only right. This goes on the Internet forever, but you can look it up. So it's Actos. And the, uh, the Actos drug, which I'm sure does good things for diabetics, um, it's got some good results, also can cause bladder cancer. 
and the drug company had not put that on the label and I had a fellow who'd been taking it and he had developed bladder cancer and the doctor said it was because of the uh, pioglitazone molecules that he'd been taking. So I've got to try this case to the jury and I need to explain to them how the pioglitazone causes cancer and I need to put it on the record, specifically how it causes the bladder cancer. And it does that because it's able to enter into the nucleus of a cell and co-opt the DNA. So this is what I've got to do. How does it do that? It does that through peroxome proliferated nuclear receptors. So here is what one of the lawyers in essence, this is my recreation, but what one of the lawyers gave me who asked me to try this case for them. They said, here's one of the slides so you can explain this to the jury. Are you ready? (laughs) I'm supposed to tell the jury that PPARs, those are the peroxone proliferated activating receptors, play essential roles in the regulation of cellular differentiation, development, and metabolism, carbohydrate, lipid, and protein, as transcription factors regulating the expressions of genes. Now, this ability can also make them tumorigenic in higher organisms. Okay, my jury of eight women and one guy who's a butcher, who's never used the internet, are no more going to get that than the man of the moon. So as a lawyer, I've got some options. Option one, I just blow it off. I just know the jury's not going to understand diddly squat about what I'm saying. And I'm just going to blaze on through and say it and trust and hope that I say it with such conviction that they believe me even though they have absolutely no clue what I'm talking about. I got another option. I can hope that one, maybe two of the jurors will get what I'm saying. Secretly, they have a science background. They have a hobby of molecular biology. What do you do in your spare time? I read molecular biology. How about you? I'm into the rockets. (laughs) Maybe that one or two jurors can then go back and educate the others. Option three. (laughs) I can double down. What do I mean by that? Well, I was trying another case where we were dealing with the issue of whether or not Vioxx causes heart attacks. And I tried the first Vioxx case, and, and by the way, it does. And, um, but so do other drugs. My view is just warn, just tell people. Then people can make an intelligent choice, okay? That's my big beef. It's not, gee, don't sell the drugs. Every drug's got a reaction. My big beef is tell everybody the truth about them so doctors and people can make that decision. That's the argument I'm making. So, but, but here's the issue. Does the drug cause heart attacks? The way it does is, is your bloodstream 
is regulated. And, and when you have issues, you've got to teach your blood when to clot and when not to. If you cut yourself, cut yourself shaving, cut yourself on your hand, you hope your blood knows to clot. But if your blood is pumping through your heart, you hope your blood does not choose that time to clot. If your blood chooses to clot then, you hope that your blood will respond by dissolving the clot before it fills up the whole vessel. The body does this through a series of what are called prostaglandins. The name's not relevant. But this is what the body does. And two of those are prostacycline and thromboxane. Again, the names aren't relevant. I'll call them P and T. And when P and T are in balance, one of them tells your body, clot, clot, before you bleed to death. The other one tells your body, don't clot, don't clot. You're going to die of a heart attack. So I'm going to explain this, and I've got scales, and I've got ping pong balls with P and T painted on them to show how they need to be balanced in the scales, because what the drug did is it wipes out the part that says, don't clot, don't clot, and leaves all of the clotters. So I'm getting ready to do that. Well, the lawyer on the other side, her view was, Nobody's going to understand this stuff anyway. So she doubles down. I mean, I plan on explaining it. I want my jury to get it. But she's doubling down. So instead of trying to explain it, she just makes it even more complicated. This is truly what she says to our jury who has no science background at all. She says, The homeostasis of the bloodstream is such that when there is an endothelial expression of various prostacyclins, the uh, process can be affected by the cyclooxygenase 2 res- uh, inhibition of the drug. But, and I'm like, what would you just do? You just, and I leaned over to someone. I said, I've been working on this case for five years, and I don't understand what she's saying. I mean, I know the case. Like the jury is. So as a lawyer, I've got these options, but I don't go for any of those. This is the one I want. I want to educate. I want us to get it. We have these gray cells up here, and they work. The young lady, Ava, that I brought up here last week to talk about uh, uh, the substitutionary atonement, I talked to her after class. I thanked her. She said, well, I thought you were going to ask me what the substitutionary atonement was, and I was ready to give the answer. She's like, nine? I was, that's, no, I was just going to ask you for substitute teacher. You know, I was, but we've got brains. We can think. You've got brains. You can think. I'm not saying you don't have to dust off the cobwebs occasionally. I'm not saying coffee's not helping. So I go back to the PPARs and I threw away their slide. And I told the jury instead that our bodies are collections of cells. And inside those cells is there's this nucleus that has the DNA strands. Those are the instructions for making new cells. The, inside that nucleus, inside that, that key reproductive roadmap, 
That's where that DNA lies. And that DNA divides up and it tells the new cells what they're going to be. Now, one of the problems is the human body sometimes got to get stuff inside the nucleus and not everybody gets to go into the nucleus. I mean, the nucleus has got protective walls to keep out garbage because you don't want garbage tinkering with your DNA. But there's this one substance called a PPAR. This PPAR gets to go in to the nucleus. It gets to go from outside the nucleus A into the nucleus B. And what's more, the PPAR not only has tourist ability, They've got a plus one. They're able to take something with them. They're able to take the pioglitazone molecule and get it inside the nucleus. So it can jack with the DNA. So this is an analogy. This is a picture. But it helps people understand. It helps educate. You following me? Now, look, some analogies are better than others. But all analogies are going to break down at some point. And a lot of people deal with the idea of the Trinity, which is what I'm talking to you about this morning. Oh, did I tell you? Today's the Trinity. Now, (laughs) not lawsuits. Now, the Trinity, a very important concept to our faith, fundamental understanding of the nature of God. People use analogies to try and explain the Trinity. Well, those analogies, okay, they've got some use, but every analogy is going to break down at some point. So I've heard people explain the Trinity that God is three, yet God is one, like an apple. You've got the peel, you've got the flesh or the meat, Then you've got the seeds, yet they're all the apple. Well, I don't like that analogy. They're not all the apple. The peel is not all the apple. Neither is the seed. Neither is, I don't like that analogy, but okay, at least it's an effort. It's an effort. Another analogy. God is like H2O. H2O In a frozen state is ice. In a liquid state is water. In a gaseous state is steam. But it's all H2O. It's all two hydrogen molecules with an oxygen molecule. It just exists in different forms. Okay, well, I can sort of see that's helpful for how God can be three in one. But that analogy breaks down too. So how are we going to understand this idea of God being three in one? How how do we deal with the Trinity? Well, I told you metaphors and analogies work, but another thing that works that's very important is a social psychology term called anchoring. 
Anchoring simply means to, in this sense, to tie a new idea you're trying to educate someone on to something everybody already knows. That's why analogies can sometimes help. We all know an apple is peel and flesh and seeds or core. And so we can try to tie on to that. We all know who a visitor is. So if I talk about PPARs as visitors who get to automatically, you know, they've got that ambassador service that takes them into the nucleus. They've got the key that unlocks the door. They can go right inside and they can take someone with them. See, I'm tying in, I'm anchoring a new concept to something you've already got in your brain. It not only helps you learn it, but it helps you remember it. Um, Works good with Hebrew. So there's Hebrew. Let's go to the Elmo. This is the Hebrew word, which would be pronounced in English as who. Say who. Very good. Here's another Hebrew word. This is the Hebrew word that would be pronounced he. Just H long E, I guess. I should just do it that way. He. Can you say he? He. Great. Here's another Hebrew word. That's the Hebrew word that's pronounced dag. Dag. Can you say dag? Okay. Now, if I wanted to teach you these Hebrew words, I could teach them to you and I could anchor them in your brain with something you already know. This word means he. This word means she. This word means fish. Who is he? He is she. And the dog's a fish. Now, you might be saying, that's dag, not dog. If you're from Boston, it's the same thing. Hey, what kind of dog you got? (laughs) So this works better if you're from Boston. The land of 25 letters in the alphabet because they do not have an R. Going to the park. It's a park. It's got an R in it. Yeah, the park. It's dog. What kind of dog you got? My dog's a fish. I have a dog. Um, Who is he? He is she and the dog's a fish. You can hang on to that. That anchors in. Now, here's what's happened. Biblically, within the Bible, God has progressively over time revealed himself to us. He's built on our knowledge and understanding. And it's taken time and and over the centuries as the stories unfolded and as the the stories change and, and we learn more about God each step along the way. Our knowledge base changes until finally in Jesus we in essence see a side of God that we've not seen before. But even though Jesus is the final word in a sense... 
our understanding of God continues to grow even after Jesus, as we reflect upon the life of Jesus. The writings of Paul reflect upon the life of Jesus, and and you see growth and knowledge and understanding. The church has had the benefit of scriptures now for centuries, for millennia. And we've grown in understanding who God is and how he works as we've tried to sort through this knowledge bank he's given us through divine revelation. And the interesting thing is, as we try to look at God, God has used, he's the best teacher. God has used metaphors. God has used analogies. God has used proclamations. God has used parables. God has used figures of speech and more to help us make sense of who he is. And some of those metaphors and some of those parables and some of those analogies can be misused as well, can be pressed beyond where they are intended to go. I spoke last week about the Hebrew usage of the idea of an arm as being an an analogy or, or a metaphor for action, acts of power. And it's the arm of the Lord that, that set Israel free from Pharaoh. That's not to tell you that God has arms. If you took it and you read it for that, you've stretched it beyond where it's intended to go. So what we've got to do and what the church has done over time is take biblical knowledge and continue to grow and to understand God in new and fresh ways. And we had the assurance this could be done. In John 15, 26, Jesus specifically says, that the Holy Spirit's going to come and help you understand things. John 16, 13, that you'll grow in your recognition of who he is, God, who God is and what God has done. And the Holy Spirit did that with the apostles, certainly, who were firsthand hearers of Jesus. But the Holy Spirit's continued to do that through the church. One of the things that the Protestant church has to be careful about is losing the the beauty and the understanding of the fact that God has continued to explain things and work in his spirit through the church to help us understand. The Catholic church is big on that. The Catholic church says you've got scripture and you've got the church and the church is 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 very authoritative and 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 speaks on these issues And not being Catholic, I don't want to speak for Catholics, and I'm sure there's a spectrum of how they see that. But from a Protestant perspective, or as my Catholic brother John Michael will refer to me, a protest aunt, as a protest aunt, I thought I was a protest uncle, but um, as a protest aunt, as a Protestant, I want to understand that the church has validly taken the message of God and grown in an understanding of God and and his message. But at the same time, I'm cognizant of the authority of Scripture as the absolute authority as God's divine revelation by which we should be measuring our further understandings of God. Because the judgment 
lies with Scripture. And if we figure something out that's contrary to Scripture, we're wrong. So I don't want those confused. But the other side of the coin is we cannot ignore the truth that the church has grown in understanding of God through the centuries, being led by the Spirit. But we weigh what the church has learned and figured out by the Scriptures to make sure that it is indeed something from God and not something from us. You got me? All right, so with that understanding, let's start looking at the Trinity and let's try to make some sense out of a bowl of spaghetti in a way that allows those of us who are obsessive compulsive to feel at peace and able to go to sleep tonight knowing our God reigns. Now, if you've got one of those Bibles that's electronic, I've got one over here. This has my Bible. It's got it in English. It's got it in Hebrew. It's got it in Greek. And it's got it in Latin. I may have it in Spanish, but I don't know because I don't read Spanish. Um, But I think I actually may have it in Spanish as well. It's an amazing thing. I've got it here. Did you know if we get to our English Bible, and I have several, I have the ESV, I've got the King James, I've got the New King James, I've got the Revised Standard, I've got the New American Standard, I've got the New International Version pre-2011, post-2011. I got them, man, right here. You get to the search engine and you put in Trinity, it's not in the Bible. You're not going to find it, that word, Trinity, in the Bible. And, and people say to me, well, I can't believe in Trinity. It's not in the Bible. Well, my response is yes and no. No, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. But yes, The Trinity is in the Bible. It's just that word is not in the Bible. The Trinity is not a fiction of humanity. It is an understanding properly gleaned from Scripture. And to deny the Trinity is to deny significant portions of Scripture or in my opinion, to misunderstand them. So I would love to just give you a simple analogy on the Trinity and tell you it's like H2O, now let's go home. Because I'm hungry, and I'll confess that to you right now. I'm up here, I'm seeing you, and several of you look like a leg of turkey, like you get at the rodeo, one of them really big ones. I think that's what happens right before I faint from hunger. (laughs) But I'm not going to do that because that's not fair to you and your brain. All of us are able of better understanding the Trinity. Because none of us fully understand the Trinity. So I want to present the Trinity and some ideas that may help many of you grow in your understanding. So let's start with the truth. No, the word Trinity isn't in the Bible. I'm going to split the guy in half, bless his heart. He's only half as hungry as I am. Um, 
Suddenly, you're not half the man you used to be. There's a, I'm sorry, all of these things, this happens when I get deliriously hungry. The word Trinity is not in the Bible. Well, neither is the word science. Does that mean that the Bible doesn't speak to science? Don't get me wrong, please. The Bible is not a science book. If you read the Bible and think it's a science book, you're going to make some big mistakes. Because you're going to read the Psalms where they talk about the foundation of the earth and the earth will not be moved. And it's going to make it really tough for you to explain how this dirt clot is spinning in outer space on an axis and rotating around the sun. You're going to read in here that the sun comes up, rises, and the sun sets, and then makes its course to come back so it can rise again. And if you think that's talking science instead of metaphors and analogies and pictures, then you're in serious trouble if you take a science exam and say it's the sun going around the earth and not the earth going around the sun. This is not a science book, but that does not mean that it's anti-science. We've got a lecture coming up at the library next weekend. I'm going to have in here to interview some really smart, good people who will explain how our modern understanding of science really grew out of a firm understanding that the Bible has produced. I mean, it's the Bible that says there's consistency in laws of nature. Isaac Newton went to a Christian school. This is not uh, uh, anti-science, but it's not a science book. I mean, for example, you can read the Bible and look at Genesis 38, verse 9. I won't, yeah, let's put it up on the screen. Genesis 38, verse 9. 38, 9. 38, 9. It's always gutsy to put it up here. I do these PowerPoints real early in the morning. I'm always worried that I'm not going to have the right passage. Okay, so here's the backdrop to the story. Ur has been killed. Ur was married. He had a widow. Culture said at the time that Ur's brother should take the widow in as his own wife, produce offspring who could then inherit Ur's property and take care of mama in her old age. That's the responsibility of the firstborn. So, the widow doesn't have a kid. Ur is dead. So Ur's brother is responsible for doing something about it. Judah took a wife for Ur as firstborn. Her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. He's saying, go have the sexual relationship of a husband to her. Take her as your wife so that she can have a kid who will take the, the, the property and take care of her, the responsibilities. But Onan knew the offspring would not be his. It would be counted as his brother's. 
So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And this was wicked. Now, the Bible's not a science book. And the word science, actually, there are some words that maybe you could translate science. But let's be practical. In our Bible, the word science is not in the Bible. But that's biology 101. Recognition, the ova does not become the embryo absent the sperm which comes within the semen. That's just biology. So, no, science isn't in the Bible either, but we don't throw science away because the Bible itself can teach us some things. So the word Trinity is not in the Bible. Trinity, by my research, first surfaced in what we call Middle English. It's like Chaucer. It's English from basically the Norman Conquest or shortly thereafter. So figure Norman Conquest was in the mid-1000, whatever, like 10, 40, 50, 60. Who knows? That's British history and we don't care in Lubbock. Um, (laughs) But it happened. And uh, uh, somewhere in that process, within 100 years or so, is the advent of Middle English. And it lasts up. Chaucer's Canterbury Tales are written in Middle English. So Trinity is a word that first surfaces in Middle English, before the King James Version. King James is early modern English. But Trinity, as a word, didn't start there. It wasn't invented there. It comes from Trinité, an old French word. Trinité, an old French word, didn't start there. It came from Trinitas in Latin. Trinitas in Latin Latin is a Latin form of the word tribus, which means three. Trinitas in Latin means threeness. Three-N-E-S-S. Three. Look, you, you could translate... Let's come over here and add this to our dogs of fish. You could translate Trinitas... Trinity fairly as threeness. And the idea of God being three-ish, that's another way you could do it. You could say threeness, sorry, throwing them off, seeing if they're awake upstairs. You could say three-ish. See, adding the Etos ending at the end of Trinitas, that, that, that gives it kind of a three-ish, threeness. That's what the word means. So as a word, no, it's not in the Bible, but Trinity means threeness. And that's why even though the word Trinity isn't in the Bible, the Trinity is in the Bible. Because the Bible speaks to the threeness of God. That's not a Christian invention. That's not Jesus came and all of a sudden, poof, he blew the doors off of the concept of God. Throw away the Old Testament, the Tanakh. Throw away the Torah. It's of no use. Now we've got something brand new. 
No. No, 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 no. A core central tenet of God's revelation to the Jewish people on Mount Sinai was what we call the Shema. Shema Yisrael. Hear Israel. Adonai Eloheinu, the Lord our God, Adonai Echad, the Lord is one, Echad, one, one, one God. Core, good practicing Jews, including Jesus, Messiah, Yeshua Christ, would say their Shema multiple times a day. God is one. Adonai Echad, but there's a threeness about this one God, even in the Old Testament. The Old Testament will speak of God as plural. Now, I want to give you some verses to think about, and I want to be very careful as I do this. This goes on the internet. Hi, internet. There is a lot of rich texture in historical Hebrew as in any language and in the writing and of the Bible as it's been put together under God's prophetic oversight, the oversight of prophets that God's provided, I should say. And so within the framework of that, these aren't dogmatic, you must interpret the Bible this way type statements from me. But these are statements where when you're looking at it now within the light of the fullest revelation, uh, uh, it sort of makes you go, wow, interesting. Not dogmatic on this, but interesting. Let me give you some examples. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's the first passage in the Bible. Barishit bar Elohim et hashapayim va'et ha'eretz. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Bareshit is first word, means in the head or at the head of the line in the beginning, at the, at the start. Bareshit, bara, bara means he singular, created. Bara, he, a singular he created. He, she, or it. No, it's just he here, it. He created. And then the, who is the he? Barishi, bara, Elohim. Elohim is the plural form of God. See, El is the singular. Him, you add I am, that's a male plural ending in Hebrew. Elohim, that's why you get one cherub, one angel. But if you have a bunch of them, how do you plural angels, cherubs? Cherubim, cherubim, I am. That's the plural ending. This is the plural word for God, even though the verb itself is a singular one-person actor. Also interesting, a little bit later on, same chapter. Then God, Elohim, the plural form of the word God, said, let us make man in our plural image after our plural 
likeness. There's something plural about this God as it's written in the first chapter of the Bible. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah, in the year that King Uzziah died, Uzziah, by the way, had developed a leprous disease because he went into the presence of God, the Holy of Holies, when he wasn't allowed to. I mean, only the high priest, only on the Day of Atonement. I mean, this is like serious stuff. You don't go into the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. Well, in the year King Uzziah dies, Isaiah finds himself in the presence of God. And I'm sure he's thinking, great, this killed Uzziah. This is not good news for me. He finds himself in the presence of God, and in the process, he falls on his face. As God says, as he hears the angels in the throne room, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And, and, and he's on, woe am I. I didn't mean to come in here. He wasn't in the holy of holies. He was in the true presence of God. I'm, woe is me, I'm an unclean man of unclean lips. And God has to take from God's sacrificial altar to touch and to cleanse him. And then God says this, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I, and that's singular, send? Who's going for us? Plural. Singular and plural? Was Isaiah delirious and not hearing well? Oh no, he's, he's on it. The Tower of Babel story. The flood's come and gone. The people are united, maybe for the last time in human history. And they decide that they're going to build this ziggurat so that they can command the presence of God. They're going to build the tower. They're going to ascend. And that's going to be the gateway into the very presence of God. And God's response to this is, come, let us go down. They didn't need to wait for the gateway. God didn't. Let us, plural, go down. And they're confused their language so that they might not understand one another's speech. So the us went down and dispersed them. But that us is singular Yahweh, the Lord. The Lord dispersed them. Let us go down. It's plural. And so he went down, singular. The Trinity is in the Bible. It shows God as plural. It also shows God as spirit. Um, The earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now that word spirit, ruach, can can reference the wind and the breath. So maybe that's some impersonal God is breathing. But God's not a physical being that has breath. Breath itself is a metaphor 
The Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters. How about in Ezekiel? Time after time, I've thrown two of them up here. Time after time, Ezekiel is taken away by the Spirit of God. Look at this passage from Psalm 63. The contrite psalmist. Have mercy, Lord, in your compassion. Blot out my iniquities. And in the process of this penitential prayer, he says, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Now again, you may be saying, well, that's still probably a reference to the breath of God. If you read that as the breath of God, well, the breath of God, again, is just an analogy. But how about this passage from Psalm 63? They rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. How do you grieve someone's breath? If someone's being grieved, someone is more than a mere force. They rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. You can find in the Bible, God is plural. You can find in the Bible, God is spirit. You can find in the Bible, God is three. So Abraham and Sarah don't have any kids yet. They got their tents, they got their crops, or not crops, uh, their, their animals, their livestock. And they've camped out, pitched their tent by the oaks of Mamre. When, when something bizarre happens, it's in Genesis 18. Here it is. The Lord. See those all capitals? That's Yahweh. That's the same Lord who spoke to Moses out of the burning bush. The Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. Oh, I'm dying to see how God appeared to Abraham. Can't wait to get to the next verse. God appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre. Abraham looks up and there are three men standing in front of him. God appeared. The Lord appeared. As three men? I mean, if you take a moment, read the story. We're out of time, so I'm going to have to come back and pick this up. And it's going to be week after next, God willing. Sorry about that. Um, but, but we're coming back. I mean, this story is just fascinating the way it lays down and just switches between plurals and singulars. Look at this. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifts up his eyes. The Lord appeared to him. He lifts up his eyes and he looks. And here's the Lord appearing. Behold, three men standing in front of him. When he saw him, he ran from the tent to meet them, plural, them. And he bowed himself to the earth. And he said, Oh, Lord, singular. If I found favor in your sight, singular, do not pass by your servant. Singular, Abraham was one. Let a little water be brought. Wash your feet, rest yourselves, plural, under the tree. While I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourself. The Lord starts talking to him. Look, verse 9. They said to him, where is Sarah your wife? They? 
They? Okay. At the count of three, we're going to say in unison, where is Sarah, your wife? Are you ready? One, two, three. Where is Sarah, your wife? I mean, was it that? This just... Where is Sarah, your wife? He said, she's in the tent. And then the Lord says... I'll return to you at about the same time next year. The Lord, singular. Then, this whole thing just mixes back and forth. And the next story after this is where God goes down to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Same three guys. Same process. Just weaving back and forth between the singular and the plural. The word Trinity is not in the Bible. The threeness of God is from cover to cover. So we're out of time. Here's where I am today on this to take home. I stand amazed before the Lord. I mean, come on, let's get real. God is not a figment of our imagination. God is real. And he is far beyond anything we can ask or think. If you've got God in a box, if I've got God in a box, that's a joke. There's not a box big enough. Through Isaiah the prophet, he also said, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. He's beyond anything we've got. And as a result, I want to be ready to learn more about him. I want to know more. That Isaiah passage continues, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. I want more. I want a hunger and thirst for the word of God. I want God to reveal himself to me more fully. If you're reading through your psalm devotional, not the Torah devotional, if you've still got the old psalm devotional from a couple years ago, there was one a few weeks back about if you want to see God more clearly, walk in righteousness. Jesus said the same thing, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. I want to learn more about God. And I'll tell you this. Step one, change what you're feeding yourself. Change what you feed your mind. Change what you feed your eyes. Change what you feed your ears. Change what you feed your senses. We grow in holiness. We grow in our understanding of God. Every day counts. You're only going to get to be so close by virtue of time that you've got left on this earth. Every day counts. I don't want to wake up on my deathbed and say, oh, gee, I wish I'd have done that differently and had a better understanding of the Lord I'm going to meet. And lament all of the things that I didn't do in my life and things I didn't teach my children or things I didn't teach you. Because I was so short-sighted that I'm feasting on garbage. 
I want to learn more about God, but his heavens are higher than this earth and his ways are higher than ours and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So if we're going to get them, we need to feed them through his spirit. Let him grow us in who he is. And then last take home. Oh, worship the Lord. All glorious above. Holy, holy, holy. Three holies. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So may I. Would you join me in a word of prayer? I'm sorry I went a little long. Father, thank you so much for your love. You truly are beyond our understanding, beyond our ability to grasp. But Lord, we, what we do see is brilliant. It's awesome. We catch a glimpse, Father, and our knees shake and our jaws go slack. Oh, Father, expand our glimpse. Don't let us limit you by our own thoughts. Grow us with yours. Through Jesus our Lord. Amen.